Hello, gentle listeners. What follows is an interview with Gaia Marziana, a student of polytheist learning, philosophy, and theology, with a particular expertise in the lesser-known reaches of late antiquity, exactly the kind of person we love to talk to here on the Schweb. Under discussion is an extraordinary and mysterious late-antique Latin writer, Martianus Capella, and the mysterious and extraordinary book he wrote, De Nuptiis Philologiae et Mercurii, on the marriage of philology and Mercury, also known in medieval tradition as De Septem Disciplinis, on the seven subjects of study. This book is indeed our earliest systematic laying out of the traditional subjects known as the liberal arts, seven of them. It is also the first appearance of the two subsets within the liberal arts, the so-called trivium and quadrivium, by which they are often divided, the trivium being the linguistic arts and the quadrivium being the mathematical ones. But it is so much more than this. The interview which follows jumps in at the deep end on this extraordinary writer and his extraordinary book, so I thought I would add a short introduction to give some context. So that's what you're listening to right now. We are sometime in the early 5th century in far western Africa, the general place where Augustine had been hanging out and where Macrobius was probably still hanging out when our author wrote, although there's no sign that Macrobius knew Capella nor that Capella knew Macrobius. We are discussing one Martianus Capella, for it is he, another polytheist intellectual of the very late Roman, or indeed post-Roman, world, like Macrobius. We know he lived after the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 because he refers to it, and has been conjectured that he must have been writing before the Vandal takeover of Western Africa, which took place sort of throughout the 430s. But this doesn't necessarily follow. Even if he wrote earlier than this takeover, he probably lived through the takeover. Anyway, we're looking at an African writer of the early 5th century, writing in Latin, but he knows Greek. Capella goes by some variant names in the manuscript tradition. Martianus Mineus Felix Capella is the long form. He seems to have been from Madaura, Apuleius's hometown, to the north of modern-day Algeria. Now, why do we care about this guy? Well, the marriage of philology and Mercury, his great work, is a bizarre combination of encyclopedic textbook on the seven liberal arts and elaborate liminal allegorical ascent narrative combining astrological, astronomical, and arithmological lore. Loads of Greek and Roman antiquarian knowledge, including a lot of what you might call occult stuff. A fusion of Stoic, Platonist, and other theological ideas and more into an insanely elusive tale of ascent through the planetary spheres toward the divine, through education in the liberal arts. Stahl, whose translation of Macrobius we were using in the last episode and who worked extensively on Martianus's text, says of the Latin style of the marriage that it, quote, constitutes one of the most difficult styles in the entire range of Latin literature. If listeners are familiar with the book, Hypnorotomachia polyphili, we're in that sort of territory. Intentional overdetermination in polysemy, intentional ambiguity, an authorial tone which is impossible to pin down, 
Uh, is he joking? Is he being over the top on purpose? Is this satire? Is this deadly serious? Is it a mix of all these things? No one can agree. He's drawing on a whole range of interlocking bodies of lore, including occult sciences of the day and philosophic ideas in bizarre profusion. So that's why we're interested in this book. Now, if we're asking why, as scholars of Western esotericism, we care about this book, the answers are a little more cut and dried. Like Macrobius's commentary, The Marriage was a window onto lots of ancient ideas, including important themes like cosmic ascent, Platonist metaphysics, astrology, magic, and more, for the Latinate Middle Ages. It was one of the vectors by which this stuff was translated to the far west in the days before the large-scale translation of Arabic works into Latin. While Capella was never as widely read as Macrobius, he was read in some very important centers of spirituality and philosophy, notably the later Carolingian court and at the so-called School of Chartres, oh, and by Dante Alighieri. And so Capella's book constitutes a crucial link in the transmission of certain ideas, very central to Western esotericism, in the far West. Also, as Katie Reed has argued in a recent book, Capella didn't quite disappear from the scene in early modernity as was long asserted by earlier scholarship. Now, the fact that his book is so weird is relevant here. The transmission of lore about the liberal arts in Capella's book gains a hint or more than a hint of the weird and the uncanny and the spiritual, which it might otherwise have lacked. So it's very important that we talk about Capella's work, and there's no one better to talk about it with than Martiana. Now, the book is divided into nine chapters. The first is the betrothal, in which philologia, the personification of philology or scholarly study of language, you might say, the love of words, she is going to get betrothed to Mercury, that is, Hermes. And Mercury, like all the many uh, polytheist traditional gods who appear in this story, is one minute the actual god Mercury, the next minute the planet Mercury, another time an elaborate allegory for various elemental things, another time some kind of uh, metaphysical force in the universe. These gods are super slippery and cover vast and shifting semantic ranges. Everything is polysemous in this work. So chapter one is the betrothal, chapter two is the marriage itself, and then comes the ascent. Chapters three, four, five move through grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, or the traditional trivium. Chapters 6 through 9 move through geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and harmony, the traditional quadrivium. Enjoy the interview. Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today we are speaking with Marciana, student of ancient literature, the director, I guess, of the Sartrix project, which is an online kind of constantly mutating uh, resource uh, network of material on late antique Platonism, polytheism, and related philosophical stuff. Just check it out. Don't take my word for it. And a lady who knows a thing or two about Martianus Capella. Marciano, thank you so much for coming on the Schwepp. Thank you for having me. So, You've been working on a little s- text by Marcianus, a, a grammatical work that's been discovered. 
which is yes. r- really fascinating. So tell us about this work and, uh, and you know, what makes it interesting to us. Well, I'll start with what makes it interesting right at the beginning, maybe. There is a sort of interpretation of the philologia, or the, the marriage of philology and Mercury, that it's ultimately a parody of learning, that there's like all of this um, knowledge of grammar and rhetoric and mathematics that's sort of piled up. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, the point is supposed to be that it's all useless. But then uh, in, in 1990, Mario de Nonno, a, a scholar of Latin grammar, which is a surprisingly large field of study, actually, found this, this little text that previously hadn't been even recognized as a separate text. It was just thought to be excerpts from something else. Uh, and he looked at it more closely and he realized that it was actually a little treatise on poetic meter by Capella. And uh, he's not published it yet. So, so I've done an, an edition myself uh, in the meantime, so to speak. But the point being, he, in this work, just gives a straight up grammatical treatise. There's no complications. There's no irony. There's no humor, even almost. It's just a, a treatise on a grammatical topic, which he addresses to his son. And that's, on the one hand, so similar to the Philologia, which is also a handbook of learning addressed to his son. And then, on the other hand, so different, because it's just straight doctrine, straight teaching, that I think it has to inform how we read the, the Philologia as um, being a real work of, of learning and of teaching, and not just a parody of teaching. That's incredibly useful. Is there some kind of weird magical parallel in the fact that this guy's called Mario di Nonno, which is like Nonno Sopanopolis, and that brings us into the whole... <laughs> and he works on... He's publishing a work on meter, poetic meter. And Nonus and Panopolis was this late antique polytheist Christian poet who did innovative things with epic meter. Or is that just me pushing things too far? <laughs> I imagine it's a, it's a parallel that Capella would have enjoyed as well. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, the reason that I keep calling it the Philologia is that that's the, that's the title that he uses in the metrical treatise where he cites his other work. Got it. So metrical, and, uh, we know the metrical treatise comes after the philologia because right. he cites it. That's really good to know. And you say you've done it. You've done an edition. You just went ahead and did one. Is that available on your Star Trek's project? I, I hope it will be by the time this episode uh, goes out. Excellent. Before we get into the philologia, we'll call it that. I wonder if you can go into what you think is relevant about the life uh, and times of Martianus. He's living in probably North Africa in the 5th century. Is there anything else about... I mean, we don't know very much about this person, but is there anything you think is kind of interesting or relevant for interpreting the work? Well, something that's definitely interesting to consider is that there's many other writers from this area at the same time who don't know Greek, but Capella does seem to know, you know, how how good his Greek was, you know, who knows, but he definitely seems to know uh, a fair bit of Greek. He read uh, the Chaldaic Oracles. He read something like the Greek magical papyri, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And, well, that tells us that the picture we get from St. Augustine, for example, of this like drastic loss of Greek literacy is not a complete picture. Even, you know, Capella is probably one, two, three generations after Augustine, and he still had 
access to to a kind of education that Augustine maybe didn't or or maybe it was less available in Augustine's time even than it was thirty years later. who knows hmm yeah, possibilities. It also shows I think that if we were to take Augustine's rather extreme view of what it is to be a Christian and what it is, you know, the, the sort of incredible exclusivist approach where anything from magic to normal, like, you know, just everyday worship is all demons and basically everything except a very narrow window of Christian practice and belief is demonic. If we're to take that as an actual reality on the ground in the fifth century in Africa, we'd blatantly be missing the reality because there's someone writing this book in the same general area a few generations afterwards and this book was picked up and widely disseminated and people liked it and we don't have any evidence that people said oh it's unchristian blah 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 so in retrospect it's easy to think okay this is what christianity and what you know roman late antique culture was like because that's what augustine wants you to think it's like but no <laughs> right well i think we also have to remember that I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the author that Augustine cites most often after, you know, the, the Bible is probably Virgil. So even, you know, like in the heart of, uh, I suppose, Christian reaction to paganism, there is this just absolute um, assimilation of the great pagan writer in Latin, uh, which is Virgil. And not just Virgil, but also the, the commentaries on Virgil, which mm. give you a certain way of reading his works and give you a certain way of interpreting his references to the gods. Uh, not necessarily a less pagan way, but definitely a, a more complicated way than we sort of tend to have when we look at these uh, ancient epics and their stories of gods coming down to earth and, and involving themselves with human affairs. And I think that Capella expects to be read in the same way that Virgil was read as, as, uh, at the time. And I think that someone like Fulgentius, who was a Christian writer a couple of decades after Capella, presumably, he definitely read Capella, and he probably would have read him just in this way. He also wrote about uh, about Virgil, about interpreting Virgil in a way that mostly gets rid of like the problematic aspects for a Christian. Not entirely, but for the most part. And I think that reading sort of would have been available uh, for a reader of Capella. Mm. But let's talk about <laughs> the philology, the on, on the marriage. Theology, yes. gods, daimones, and uh, how humans relate to these invisible living things. Of course, it would be too simple if Capella just uh, told us straight out what he, what he thinks. Um, it's not that kind of text. And also, I think Capella is not that kind of thinker who would sit down and write like a doctrinal outline in the way that maybe Proclus uh, did uh, or someone like that. Right. Or even maybe Salustius, back, maybe. Or a Salustius, right. Um, very different uh, kind of approach to writing. And maybe there's uh, another connection to Servius here, which is that Servius will often, rather than interpret a whole passage or a whole long episode, as, as we would tend to do, he interprets a specific word or or couple of words or sentence and he often gives multiple interpretations of the same sentence so 
he will say, you know, according to, let's say, what he would call theology. So what we would call mythology. This has one meaning. You know, in, in mythology, the gods have human shapes, human bodies. They actually come down. They have children with, with humans and so on. Uh, but according to, he uses different terms, according to nature, according to the physiologists, according to the Stoics, for example, these things have a different meaning. Mm. So for instance, um, I don't know if Servia specifically talks about this, but the arrows of Apollo, for instance, according to mythology, they're just arrows, right? They, they're used to kill, to actually kill people or make them sick. But according to like a physiological interpretation, they're a symbol for the rays of the sun. At the beginning of the Iliad, for instance, where the, the Greeks before Troy all fall sick because Apollo is shooting his arrows at them. The physiological interpretation of that is that the sun's rays were too hot and so people got sick in the camps. And another way of interpretation that sometimes comes up is uh, secundum mathematicos, according to the astrologers. Yeah. So the same thing might mean something physiologically. So, for example, Jupiter would refer to the ether, the realm of fire, but it could also astrologically refer to the planet Jupiter at the same time. And this is exactly the way that Capella writes. So, like, in one sentence, uh, Mercury will be the planet, and in another, he'll stand for um, intelligence. And then in the next sentence, again, it's it's a description of his body, where you can only take it mythologically. And often he mixes these things up very intricately, almost daring you to try and pick them apart. But it's it's not al- not always possible to really take them apart. Mm. And what does he tell us in given that kind of? <laughs> I I almost want to call it baroque, but I think maybe the style of this work. But I think that's maybe because it was such an inspiration to certain types of writing we find in the Baroque period, the sort of macaronic, incredibly involute, multiple layers of symbolism all colliding with each other at the same time style of prose poetry. But this this style, this uh, kind of intentionally overdetermined, intentionally exploding with symbolism and correspondences, he doesn't come out and tell us what he thinks about the gods, but, but what does he think about the gods or what does he tell us about the gods? <laughs> Uh, well, he does say sort of more directly what he, or he seems to be more direct in some passages than in others. I would especially sort of single out the hymns that are inserted into the work, or insertion is maybe the wrong word. They're very tied into everything else, but they are definitely distinct, as a lot of passages have these distinct generic qualities, like there's passages of parody or of satire, passages of straight instruction. And in the same way, there are just wonderful hymns that, that do tie into their, into the rest of the work, but they're also just very beautiful examples of hymnography. And, uh, again, <laughs> depends on the specific hymn you look at. Uh, there's a hymn to Minerva, which again has this mixture of different discourses. There's the sort of arithmological meaning of, of Minerva, where she's the number seven. Uh, or number five, I don't remember. Both were current in antiquity. She's she's ether. Uh, she's the goddess of learning. All of these things are mixed up, and they can't really be torn apart. Uh, but there are other hymns that are more unitary, I suppose, in their in their design. So, for instance, the the work starts with a hymn to Hymenaeus, uh, the god of marriage, 
and it describes Hymenaeus as being the bond that uh, combines or that binds together all the gods and all the mortals and binds together the world out of its um, discordant parts. So there's definitely that idea that the, let's say, the, the structure of the, of the cosmos is something divine. You know, whether he actually thought that Hymenaeus was a distinct sort of intellect, a divine personage, so to speak, who knows? But he definitely had this general idea that there was a, a divine architecture, an intentional divine architecture to the cosmos. Now, it seems to me that that, although we don't find that approach where where you might have Athena literally corresponding to a named metaphysical principle in a kind of grand architecture of a Platonist cosmos universe, rather, until, say, Proclus, where where you really start to get like traditional Greek gods named put into places and like this, you know, they all have metaphysical roles assigned to them. Although we don't find that really till Proclus in that way, it does seem to me that that is kind of the way later Platonists think about the gods generally. You use mythology on the one hand to talk about them in a sort of certain uh, level of discourse, but you understand that they are metaphysical realities, really metaphysical realities. And so do you think it's a sort of person or not? We, I guess we can't say with Martianus, right? But um, I would say, I would say in specific instances, it's not always clear. So that's a qualification I would make about Hymenaeus, for instance. Right. But, um, when he describes, there is a long scene where he describes the, the entrance of the gods into a sort of divine council. And in that case, a lot of the gods just have to be distinct persons, the way that they're described. The entrance of the sun, for instance. The sun is obviously a distinct, uh, deity. It's not the same as the moon. It's not the same as the earth. And so these are definitely distinct. I wouldn't say metaphysical entities necessarily, but at least physical entities. Got it. And, um, Marcianus does have these elements of Neoplatonism, but I wouldn't really call him a Neoplatonist. He's, I think, as much influenced by the tradition of grammar as he is by the philosophy of his time. And the grammarians had really assimilated Stoic philosophy. So their conception of the gods was mostly in terms of, you know, the fire and uh, air and earth and water, and then the planets, and then these smaller forces that are all really part of a larger force, but are also distinct souls in a way you could say. The same way that, according to the Stoics, you know, every person has a distinct soul, but they are all parts of one soul. I think that that is essentially how Marcianus thinks about the cosmos, and then when he goes beyond the cosmos, he starts thinking more neoplatonically. Hmm. Which makes a lot um, of sense if you think about it, you know. Yes. Um, not unlike Plotinus, though very different, but from, just from the basics you've laid out there, that's kind of what Plotinus does. He talks a lot about sympatheia in the, in the cosmic frame, which is a, just a blatantly stoic term, indicating how everything in the cosmos is connected up, and that's how um, things like astral magic work. But then when he's outside the cosmos, he's purely drawing on Plato, you know? Yeah. I, I would also say that, uh, there's in, in, in Proclus and also in earlier, I would say it begins with Iamblichus. There is 
what I would really take to be an anti-Stoic bent to making everything about the gods metaphysical rather than physical. Right. So they're appropriating Stoic concepts, but then reinterpreting them to be about something above nature. So hmm. um, the Stoics say that Hera or Juno is the air, by which they mean, you know, a, a thinking being that sort of en en ensouls the air, but nevertheless the actual physical air. And Proclus will say Hera rules the air, but obviously she's just an embodied soul. She's embodied in a, in a spherical body, which is the most perfect body, not in the air itself. And then the soul is just, a, a, I would almost say, a pale reflection of the intellect, which is a reflection of the henad, which is almost not even incorporeal. It's like above being incorporeal. Right. It's not even and not it's, corporeal. Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And, uh, and that's not really Capella's thing. He's much more, I would say, in touch with that whole grammatical tradition, uh, which does posit sort of a very direct relation between what the the epic poets talk about and what you what we see just when we look out into the world the sky the earth and so on uh, and also invisible forces but invisible forces that are fairly close to us rather than you know transcendent well that maybe brings us to the daimones right yes the and um... this is the topic that he i would say teaches about most directly so in the ascent of philology to the heavens she first has to go through the air obviously above the earth and there she encounters juno who's described in a very mythological way as riding there with her whole train of attendants but then philologia addresses her in a in a prose hymn i would say which does directly call her the air or the the ruler of the air but also uses all of these uh, traditional roman and greek epithets for her and it all leads up to a request to explain to her all of the divinities that are in the air which are the demons of course or the daimones and then juno actually she specifically asks with a greek term to be given an exposition on the demons peri daimonon and, uh, and Juno uh, obliges. She gives a, in the German translation I have to hand here, I think it's like two or three pages, which is relatively long for a particular episode or, or passage in, in this work, where she just goes from the very sort of top of the universe down to the earth. So she doesn't speak about something, about anything beyond the cosmos, and she doesn't speak about an underworld. Um, it's really the sort of stoic cosmos, and uh, it starts with the gods who are equated with the, the planets, the stars. And then the planets have their daemons, their daemonas who follow them. And these are still in the fiery region, so to speak. Yeah. And then it sort of uh, goes down into ever smaller subdivisions of the air. And he sort of finds a space for every little creature that you would find in the Roman antiquarians, the, the manes, uh, the lares, and so on. And to make space for them as distinct beings a lot of the time, not always, some of them he conflates, uh, but he brings in ideas that, you know, to a lot of students of, of ancient religion might be strange. For example, the manes are not identical with the soul of the dead. 
they are attendants of the body and then depending on like <laughs> on their own behavior not the behavior of the dead person uh, they will either hang around the, the tomb and become you know like haunting spirits or they might become the sort of uh, lesser deities or spirits that people uh, worship in their homes and uh, at the shrines on their streets like these lesser guardians right um and that is just all far too original and too intricate and too technical i think to be just um mythological i think that's definitely sort of a doctrinal attempt to to make sense of these multiple traditions there's fairly recent ideas there's the term angel there's very ancient ideas that have been filtered through the grammatical tradition. And for a couple of decades, there's been this consensus that this is all derived from Iamblichus. And it's, I mean, <laughs> we don't have to get into it, but it, it obviously isn't. There's really no connection to anything Neoplatonic, um, apart from a few basic ideas, the daemons as, uh, as mediators between the gods and humans. But that's it's just Plato. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just Plato, or it's just Greek religion. You know, after a or certain that, point, yes. you know, um, the idea that there's gods, there's humans, and there's daimones kind of in between. That just was a general sort of consensus, I think, on the street yeah. in ancient Greece or in um, ancient Greco-Rome. Um, but the other thing is, you know, a priori, Iamblichus never speaks about any of the Roman lore. He never talks about Janus or Manes or Penates or any of that stuff. No, so it just blatantly can't be from from Iamblichus. <laughs> yes, I, I think the idea is that basically everything but the Roman words are Greek, but a lot of the words are Roman, so that right. doesn't, really, doesn't yeah. really work out. Yeah. Could I come in with a couple comments and see what you think of them? Yes. One thing that's interesting is that the daimones, although they are fallible, I mean, it, it seems to me that the daimon in, in a lot of these um, late antique takes, non-Christian takes, is something not dissimilar to a jinn in uh, in Islam. They're moral agents just like humans. They can make good choices or bad choices, and they get promoted or demoted depending on what they do. They can end up being kind of what you might call evil spirits if they become corrupt or whatever, but that's not their fundamental nature. And so we don't have Christian demons, that's for sure. Like the daimon here is much more of a morally neutral being that can it can do well or do badly. Discuss. Uh, yes and no. If we go back to what, what Philologia asks for, it's sort of a disquisition on daemons. So the whole thing is about daemons, but then also there's a specific subgroup of these beings who are specifically called daemons, or actually two different ones <laughs> that are specifically called daemons. Right. So those sort of attendants on the, on the gods who are still in the fiery region, so very, very sublime, very elevated, they're called daemons. So everything sort of between the gods and the air is daimonous, including the angels. And then there's a bunch of other beings. There's uh, demigods, heroes, who are distinct from the demigods in this case. And there are the manes, who are these figures I mentioned before, sort of the two beings that are assigned to you when you're born. Actually, they're passed down somehow from the parents. Yeah, they're like your family, and, uh, or one of your family gods, right? Exactly. And here Capella is combi combining a Latin and a Greek idea. And the Latin idea is that the manes are always in the plural. 
Mm-hmm. There's not really a singular for the word manes. But then there's also this Greek idea that not only does every person have a daemon, a, a, a fortune, a fate, they actually have two daemons, a good one and a bad one. So he's combining these ideas. And these figures are also specifically called daemons. And they are definitely moral agents in their own uh, right. They can act well, they can act badly. And they always stay close to the earth. Whereas humans, if, if we do the kinds of things that he thinks are, are virtuous, we can actually rise up all the way to the gods, which these beings apparently can't. And then there are also the so-called long-lived ones, which some of the Neoplatonists also talk about, but it's not a very specifically Neoplatonic idea. And these are basically people, in a sense, but they're just very long-lived people, and they live in very out-of-the-way places, in, in forests, on mountains, and so on. These are the nymphs, the fauns, the satyrs, and they have these somewhat superhuman powers, but they're not really gods. And, you know, I would assume that they probably have similar souls to us, but he doesn't really go into that. Mm. Uh, who knows? That's giving us a picture. <laughs> Let me um, fill in a little bit of uh, assumed cosmology. So we have a, a, a central earth, of course, in a tradition that goes back to Aristotle, at least we have around the earth, these elemental regions, which you're just taking for granted, rightly so, because everyone did. But um, for <laughs> modern for modern listeners might need laying out that there's four elements, obviously, the, the area of earth is the earth, then you have a, a, a watery region, then you have an airy region, then you have a fiery region. And this is also often called Aether, depending on the source. And, you know, it's, is it fire? Is it some special thing? It depends. And then you have the stars and planets going up into what you find at the outer rim, which is the sphere of the fixed stars, but might also be the world soul. It depends a little bit on which thinker we're in. So that's a terrestrial and stellar background that all this is taking place on. So these elementary regions are full of Daimonis and and critters. They're they're an absolutely seething kind of jungle of uh, fauna, right? Yes, absolutely. So with that bit of background, another thing you sometimes find in a cosmology is an underworld, but we don't have an underworld here, right? And in traditional Roman mythology, like going back, you know, that we see on tombstones and we see on funerary practices and all this kind of stuff, the manes are subterranean. They're chthonic entities, or at least on a Roman tombstone, it says dis manibus to the to the manes gods and that's someone who's been buried in the ground so there's this chthonic aspect but all of that has now been made astral as we find in macrobius and and many other late antique thinkers is that right that the entire kind of architecture of hades and traditional where you go after you die is no longer within the earth but it's in the sky yes there's there's nothing in the earth or below the earth this is maybe a, a small digression, but people who sort of criticize the geocentric model, which, you know, of course is inaccurate, but <laughs> when it gets critiqued in modern times, it's often this idea that people used to think we're at the center, we're the most important thing. But actually, in this conception of space, the earth is down. So we're at the bottom. Yeah. We're like um, the sewer and, of the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> and it's up in all directions, basically. So we're already in the lowest place we can be. And um, how Capella accounts for the underworld or the equivalent of the underworld is in itself not very original. He sort of transports those things to the air. So the souls can go up 
uh, and traditionally they can also go down, but in this case it's just how far up do they go. And um, the lowest place to go is the air, and that's also where all of these quasi-demonic infernal beings hang out. And there's specifically there's like a stream of hot air, uh, which is supposed to be Piriflegiton, the, the fiery river in the underworld where souls are punished. Uh, and that's sort of the worst place to be in this universe. It's like a purgatory of sorts. But this this basic idea is not really unusual. We have this idea of just Greek religion, Roman religion. They have this concept of heaven and they have the underworld. But what really kept that alive was the mythological discourse and the pictorial tradition. And in that context, yes, the Earth is basically conceptually flat, if not actually flat. Right. Uh, but in philosophy and also in the grammatical tradition, which drew on philosophy, the idea that the heroes and mames and the dead in general are actually above the Earth is very widespread, even in, in Varro's times. So basically at the start of really learned Latin writing, uh, some 600 years or 500 years before Capella. And uh, these traditions just coexist very peacefully. They're not really seen as being in contrast because one can be interpreted in uh, the sense of the other. Right. And I think that's also what is going on in Capella. It's always good to remind ourselves of these long, these long traditions and the kind of cosmological assumptions people are under. And, you know, even today we talk about the sun rising and setting, even though we know perfectly well that that's not yes. what's happening. So, so cosmology is just really, really conservative on the level of everyday speech, everyday metaphor, everyday imagery. Christians still talk about going to heaven, but they don't really mean <laughs> right. the sky, you know. So these uh, multiple traditions and layers of tradition can kind of all coexist depending on what level of, you know, if I'm an astronomer, I'm still going to talk about the sun rising in the morning, even though I know the sun isn't rising, you know. Yeah. So that's good, good background. And having laid out that celestial topography, I think we need to talk about how humans can navigate that because that's fundamentally the core dynamic of the book it seems to me is ascent right yes and divinization through ascent right it's i think it's a it has to be a of course a multifaceted answer there are i would say multiple ways to sort of merit the ascent and capella even says when he talks about the soul going all the way up past the daemons or up to the gods he says that it happens very often all the time. <laughs> so it doesn't seem like he's, uh, he has this idea that only a very, very select elite can go up. Of course, you know, he doesn't list his cousins or whatever when he's talking about heaven. You know, as you might imagine in Dante, where all of these people he knew personally are, are up in these, uh, regions. But he mentions Plato. He mentions uh, even Epicurus, which is unusual, wow. I would say, in this period. And Epicurus think... was very surprised to find himself in a uh, geocentric cosmos <laughs> in the afterlife. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Always afraid of falling down through the clouds. And I think these are not sort of supposed to be distant figures to admire. They're also models to emulate. And the way you emulate them is basically through learning the liberal arts, uh, which is what the book is about, of course. 
um, so you merit this kind of ascent, not just, uh, or I don't think he ever really mentions ascent through being a political figure in the way that Cicero does. And he does talk about sort of what we would call maybe a kind of religious ascent. Um, but I do have the sense that the aim of the whole work is to ennoble the soul through learning and through a very uh, diverse form of learning. So what's actually being talked about in the book are these uh, seven um, these seven liberal arts and also, of course, all of the stuff in the first two books, the mythology and the lists of gods and the daemons and so on, and that's obviously also important in its own way. But then there are also these references to other knowledge that's not in the book, but which is clearly also important. And specifically, he talks about various forms of divination. Uh, so divination, which is also connected to worship, is uh, part of this ascent, part of ennobling the soul. And the kind of worship he has in mind is not really animal sacrifice, temple worship and so on, simply because that was no longer really a possibility that wasn't available anymore due to just legal constraints. Yeah. What he mentions again and again is just incense, offering incense, which people also did for non-religious purposes in antiquity, just to make things smell nice. And um, which, you know, as something that took place in the home wasn't really subject to prosecution as much as public-facing forms of uh, religion were. He doesn't get into detail on divination, probably in part to protect himself, or maybe just because it's more esoteric knowledge, yeah. uh, more for the initiate. But the parts he gets most explicit about are sort of a planetary ascent, so worshipping the planets in order from well, from Juno upwards through the planets, all the way up to Jupiter, to, to the fiery region, the ether. Uh, and then once he gets to that point, or once Philologia gets to that point, it switches to a Chaldaic form of ritual. So something based on the Chaldaic oracles or also the Chaldaic prose writings, you know, who knows exactly what he was reading, maybe right. the commentaries by Porphyry and Diamblichus. Mm. But something in this sort of literature that he still had access to and which he describes in detail that also lines up with some stuff that we find in the Greek magical papyri. Um, this so it suddenly of, gets theurgic, arguably, although right. not calling itself that, but um, this, this body of religious practice that reminds people of magic because we see many parallels with our surviving magic corpus, um, addressative ritual of some type. Yes. Aimed at astral, uh, entities so as to be able to kind of ascend one by one past them. Right. And the addresses, they sort of begin with, with these kind of hymns that are actually in the book. But then once we're past the cosmos, and I should say, it's not that the soul actually leaves the cosmos. Philologia always remains inside the cosmos, but she's sort of cyclically turning towards the higher realities. Mm. And then she begins addressing the higher deities in, I guess, non-discursive speech and these, uh, what we call the, 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 
Volkes Mystikai, the, the barbarous names, and then yeah. at the very top, she speaks in silence. She or she addresses uh, the father in silence rather than actually addressing him with speech. Thank you for that, which you've laid out beautifully, and which is proof, if proof were needed, that this little read, uh, widely forgotten book is one of our most important pieces of evidence for late antique esoteric religion. There's ritual practice. It elevates the soul. It's part of a whole system of paideia, a whole system of cultivation of the self, which includes stuff that we might not even tend to think about, like learning mathematics. Uh, it's all one kind of holistic system. But as you get higher up, you get into this Chaldean material, and eventually you enter into an apophatic um, communication with transcendent God beyond the cosmos. It's heavy stuff. Yes. <laughs> I think maybe part of the reason people are so unaware of this text is because there's so much kind of um, humorous stuff and and uh, seemingly less heavy stuff uh, intermingled with it in a way that so for example if you're reading uh, on the gods in the world or something like that um, it's just pretty heavy it's pretty kind of serious tone and you think oh this is a serious work of esoteric plate you know polytheism but Martianus is like has a sense of humor has style has uh, all kinds of funny dis discurses in this and that direction but at the end of the day we're talking about the ascent of the human soul <laughs> through uh, elegant philological um, language beyond that to the place where uh, wokes magikai operate outside of normal philology and now we're in a meaning realm that only the gods understand humans don't even understand it anymore and then finally into the wordless silence of uh, the highest form of uh, discourse which doesn't involve words at all. I think another reason that it's not very widely known is just how difficult it is, which is maybe something that was implicit in what I've been saying, but could have been stressed more. It really is a very hard text to read, and I think intentionally so. I think Capella has this idea that you get to where you want to go through intellectual struggle, and there's a pleasure in that struggle, but it is hard work and it's meant to be hard work. I would sort of compare it to Ulysses, which is also a very serious book, also a very funny book, but a book that's not meant to be just, you can't just sit down and read it through the way you can read a, a Stephen King novel. Just not to say anything negative about Stephen King, but yeah. it's just a very different project. And um, Celestius is, uh, you know, writing for definitely educated people, but he's simplifying things. He's making things very logical, straightforward, and Capella is almost doing the opposite. Yeah. Not entirely the opposite, but um, he has a different purpose in mind. Mm. Yeah, it's not a pamphlet. It's not meant to be, it's not propaganda for the masses. It's no. it's not a, a <laughs> book that's going to, you know, become a bestseller because it's it's demanding. Yeah. Which, in a sense, and I wonder what you think of this, as, as a literary project, it is much more esoteric than something like Solustius. Now, we don't know the actual audience of Solustius's work. Um, obviously, it would have been a much larger audience if Julian hadn't died so young <laughs> and, you know, had managed to get his guys working on copying it and sending it to all his priests and all this sort of thing. But 
it's stating its claims very openly and very directly. It's like, this is how, uh, you know, metaphysics works. This is how the, what the gods are. This is how we should worship them, so on and so forth. While it seems to me that Capella is doing something so different from that. And depending on his motives in writing that way, it's something very esoteric. If, as, as you say, it's intentionally obscure and intentionally inviting the reader to do hard work, hard hermeneutic work to get anywhere, it certainly could be fit into the kind of um, esoteric writing we find in, for example, Plato, where he puts in these weird mathematical puzzles and stuff like that, that no one in antiquity could even agree on what they meant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that's to me is definitely a kind of esoteric writing. It's making you work. It's, it's deliberately leaving some of the interpretive keys out so that it's not easy to figure out. You have to do some work. You might, you might even not get it, even if you try, you know, that sort of thing. That's a, definitely what I would consider a form of esoteric writing. And on your reading, and I, I agree with it, it seems that's Ketris Paribus, what uh, Martianus is also doing. Yes. Uh, the, the advantage we have with Capella over these obscure passages in Plato is that even though Capella himself doesn't really explain how to read him, his contemporaries and his predecessors do give us a pretty good idea. And uh, Salustius actually could be used as a partial key. Salustius takes you by the hand and tells you, this is how you interpret the cosmos. And uh, the cosmos is a kind of myth, and all myths have these kind of parts that they refer to. They refer to the world, they refer to the gods. And, you know, Capella has a somewhat different understanding of the world and of how myth works but that's one part of it and other parts of it are these things you get from the grammatical tradition from Servius uh, things that are laid out in Macrobius for instance um, a lot of things that are in Augustine actually things he talks about from from Varro or just from his contemporaries they can be used to read Capella and this does really get us quite far the parts that are really problematic are where Capella is clearly referring to something, but it's not clear what it is, probably because the relevant like literature is not extant. Or in some cases, it's just a very obscure reference and it could mean any number of things. Right. So he's being elusive. But, he's yeah. referring to a corpus of, of literature that his readership would know yes. and we don't. Right. Okay. What about when he refers to ritual practices that are sort of taking place off the page? This is also a place where we have to kind of just say, well, we don't really know what he's talking about, right? I think we have to be, we don't have to be as sort of agnostic as, as people tend to be with these kinds of rituals. Um, you used the term theurgy earlier, and that is, you know, a useful term that people in antiquity actually used, but a lot of the time it gets deployed in scholarship to suggest that theurgy is this totally sui generis thing that happens in late antiquity. And when you look at the texts in the original, uh, first of all, a lot of the time they don't, don't actually use the word theurgy. They're just talking about priestly art or something. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they're clearly talking about ritual practice, like pagan ritual practice in general. And they even sometimes speak so generally that you could also refer to Christianity. And um, I think there's also from the descriptions of Chaldaic rituals that we have, they seem to have been very similar to the kinds of things we see in the Greek magical papyri or in, in Porphyry's description of uh, sort of these summoning rituals or addressative magic. And uh, 
I think sometimes there are specific references that we just don't get, but I think a lot of the time it's just generic enough that it can be referred to, you know, the way that ritual was usually done. So there's probably not a specific Kaldaic ritual behind the ascent, the offering to Juno and then the planets and so on, the specific sequence. I think those were just all f- relatively common things, um, offering incense to, to specific deities. And maybe there would have been different kinds of incenses for different deities, but those were not stable traditions. There's different right. texts that say different things. Yeah. And same um, with the colors, the color attributions yes. to the planets and the, the musical tone attributions to the planets. All these things like you have a huge body of magical lore that insists that you have to get it right. But then, <laughs> also, they totally change. Right. Same with the the Wokes Magikai. You know, like you you get complete variations in in which Woks Magikai you need to use for this particular deity or planet or whatever. While all under the rubric of insisting that it has to be the same, and if you get one letter wrong, it's not going to work, and all this sort of thing. Right. So if I if I put on my my practitioner hat, uh, I don't lament the loss of like a, a specific elaborate ritual behind the text. I just take this to be sort of a almost a, a model, a conceptualization of what the purpose of ritual is. It's a it's an illustration in a mythological mode of how ritual works, uh, but it doesn't have to be decoded as like, oh, what what specifically is the is the incense for Venus? Right. Uh, how exactly do you have to genuflect before Mercury or before Saturn? Well, that that is taking that is putting on a different hat as a philologian and a uh, practitioner do you think that that is martianus's intention or do you think that's just a legitimate way of using his text because as we were just saying that in in a lot of ancient textual uh materia magica we have there is a serious insistence on getting everything right down to the details and you have to get all the special materials and if you get it wrong it's not going to work do you think he he is of a mindset that it's kind of more free flowing and you sort of take do it creatively <laughs> well i imagine that he would have thought that if you use the chaldaic uh sources that you probably should stick to that way of doing it mm. you would probably be supposed to learn it you know through hard work how to do it properly but i don't think he would have insisted on this being the only way to do it right it would have been you know just by thinking about who he puts in heaven. You know, Plato didn't know the Chaldaic oracles. Uh, Romulus didn't either. He didn't mm. even know the rituals of Numa yet, which are the basis of Roman religion. So right. obviously there have to be multiple ways. And um, I think, in a sense, the whole the whole book is about multiple ways uh, of looking at things and of, of going to something better, something more noble. Marciano, thank you so much for discussing the, the ascent in on the marriage of philology and mercury and like the sort of uh, ritual stroke religious stroke experiential depths hidden within marcianus's text stay esoteric i will <laughs>